few weeks ago, I went to uh, Goodyear and say, I think there's something wrong to my car. It's really jarring when it hits the potholes. And the, the technician there, who's you know, he knows me by first name and I know him, says, well, there's two problems, Jim. First of all, potholes do exist and your tires are so thin. <laughs> he says, it is time to change them. And sure enough, two things happened. Most of the potholes were filled by the government, and the new tires made it a lot easier to go over the ones that still exist. Then, uh, all week long, I travel up and down Highway 74, at least you know once each day, back and forth. And as I do that, this last week, I was so glad, so glad that there are snow plows and sand droppers because I've been in places where there aren't. And even though the snow doesn't last long, it is what we used to call an e-ticket ride at Disneyland when they don't show up. So there are many things that we maybe just take for granted with our government. And they do these things faithfully. And so if you pay your taxes, you know, sometimes we say, well, I paid my taxes and I should be getting this. But sometimes just remember the things that you are getting that maybe you're don't notice all the time. I say that because a, a certain thing has happened where we maybe have seen government get out of control. And, uh, and I'll share the situation in just a second, but we are doing a series on the basic worldviews that are carried, especially in Western uh, civilization today. And, and it just gets down to four basic ones. First of all, you have uh, scientific materialism, which says there can be no creator God, no father God, because everything that we can know, uh, we know through human experiments and, and uh, uh, you know, it's visible. We can test it. We can measure it. And that's what materialism, we only know those things that are actually material. And if you want to hear my message about that, of how short-sighted it is, then it's uh, on the website. The second uh, one would be pantheism. Uh, secular pantheism, though it might sound interesting, that the reason we call it secular is because God is just a spirit we can never know. And not only is he a spirit that we can never know, but we, we don't predict, you know, he, there, there's nothing about his character or nature, so he's not a person. So he's way off in the, or it's way off in the distance. This, The third one is secular humanism. And uh, secular humanism is the, the, the stance that it's really humanity that is God. So if materialism says there's no Father God, pantheism says there's no true Holy Spirit that we can know, uh, secular humanism says we don't need Jesus. Humanity's God. Therefore, we believe Jesus is an historical figure, but he can't be God because we're doing a better job than he did. Uh, as I say those, understand that where does humanism tend to uh, plant and, and anchor itself? And when I say this, I am not, um, how do I say this? I am not disparaging these institutions. But the first place is government because we have a separation of church and state, and so the state has become less and less Judeo-Christian in its worldview. And it's continually pushed that way. Uh, many of you would say, not that uh, this is everywhere, but also the, um, uh, the public school system, education law, and all, and all things that are government, that we're seeing it 
drift more and more towards the humanistic view. And, uh, and I think I can honestly say, since the time I went to school, and I'll share an example why, since the time I went to school, uh, it has been less and less visible Judeo-Christian in the public school system. Okay, well, where does this show up? It shows up just uh, before the elections in Houston, Texas, of all places. In Houston, Texas, uh, because uh, there was a very low turnout the year before uh, for the election of mayor and city council people, uh, a radical uh, feminist lesbian is elected as mayor. Well, that's fine. She got the most votes, okay? It doesn't bother me. But after a few months in, in, um, uh, in her office, uh, she and some council members decide to uh, demand of five uh, biblical preaching churches that they uh, gave all five a subpoena to submit to the government all sermons and all communications, emails, whatever, whatever they sent back and forth that were public to the church members. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, suddenly this hits the fan, you might say, and uh, the churches are saying no. Churches are saying no, not because we have anything to hide. You don't have the right to do that. There is a separation of church and state. And they were assuming what the, um, what the intention was is to comb through everything that has been spoken or written and to find out where these Bible-believing Christians are actually hateful bigots and, uh, and homophobes. Okay? Uh, the mayor's office would not say that, but they wanted him for some reason. Well, uh, suddenly the legal system got involved. How they got the subpoenas, I don't know. The legal system has gotten involved, and there are some in the mayor's office and council members who are backing down and not visible and not available for interviews. And they won't be. What are we dealing with here? What is actually going on? You see... Because some people cannot accept that there are worldviews that are so different, so polar opposite, even though uh, most of them got many of their ethics and core values in the Judeo-Christian one, that they are so different and so opposite that one must hate the other. And I want to say this. I hate nobody. I hate some bad ideas. I hate some bad practices. I'm not phobic of anybody except someone who's going to rob from me. Then I'm afraid, okay? Uh, but that is what is going on. So the idea here is that all Christians, they believe, are hateful and judgmental. Therefore, we'd like to see what they have said, and we will share it with the whole community. And I was wondering, what would happen if they asked for mine? And I thought, you're going to read them? Wow. <laughs> Can we get together for coffee and talk? Because I'd really like to talk to you about my messages. Uh, nobody here does, okay? So, uh, uh, yeah, you do. I know. You've you got to let me be funny. I'll try to be funny. Okay, so, um, uh, uh, but we get a phone call that Joan intercepts uh, in the office, and it was a phone call from an anonymous woman who was representing a, some group that we'd never heard of before. 
And the question was, uh, what involvement did your church have in the last election? And uh, Joan said, well, who's calling? And it was very nebulous. And, I, and she smelled the seat right away. And, uh, and she said, Jim, I would have given it to you, but you weren't available. So I said, oh, too bad. Uh, <clears throat> and she said exactly what we did do. We had in our program the information, I mean, the, the recommendation that people vote. Anything else? Uh, earlier, we had people uh, sign a ballot initiative, and we would have done uh, just about any ballot initiative, and we kept cards for that ballot initiative, but we did not pass the ballot. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm suspicious. Would you be? Okay. What we are looking at is another, okay, the, the idea is that uh, because they know less about my worldview than I know about theirs, they have sort of summarize that all Christians are hateful, legalistic, and judgmental. They just don't know any. They haven't been around them for so long, they don't know what they're like. Now, if you think this is new, understand that over the centuries, the Church of Jesus Christ and governments have had a very uneasy relationship. Kings and parliaments have claimed to fight in the name of Christ. It wasn't true, but they claimed that. Popes and archbishops claim that they, uh, they are the ones who instruct governments uh, in how they should act. It is not true. Yet at the core, we come from distinctive worldviews. And this, by the way, is not a new trend. It's not over the centuries. But what we've been going through is Genesis 1 to 11 to say from the very beginning of where, where we can trace back human society, this has been going on. It is a part of human nature, not necessarily a part of our current, uh, of, of, of our current society. So, uh, secular humanism exists, and it's, the understanding is it exists for both individuals and societies. So I, you know, I have brought to you three separate places in, the, in Genesis 1 to 11 where this comes up. The first one is this man named Lamech who says he's going to kill people for just injuring him, meaning I'm the law. Well, who said that? Lamech says, I did. Want to fight about it? What he is claiming is his total independence and his total authority over anybody who threatens him. Then later it says that in, in, in the town of Babel, the desire was, as you see in Genesis 11:4, come, said the society, the people of, of that community. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered uh, over the face of the whole earth. The idea here is humanity, as it gets together, says let's make a name for this place, this people. And we see that today. In a way, we call it patriotism. This is my country. I'm not saying that's always bad, but when it becomes and, and, and expresses the spirit of secular humanism, it's, what it's saying is that a people can emerge who will say, we have no need for God. We're going to build a temple, and we're going to put in that temple a God that we created, not a God who has created us. And the third group you see in Genesis, it just says in one little line, and there arose at that time, 
name of the Lord. L-O-R-D, Jehovah as we know him. You see those three? From the very beginning of what we can write about society, they're all existing. So the foundation of the Judeo-Christian worldview is those who say they call upon the name of the Lord. The foundation of the secular humanist view is those who have confidence in their combined abilities or, or their own wisdom. So God's wisdom is not sought, and they do not believe that God ever intervenes. So they build a tower or a temple, and that is to prove that they can do whatever they desire. They want the awe, the respect, the fear of other peoples. It, 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 it shows a lust for power among other humans or over other humans. And we often uh, uh, you know, uh, say that uh, our founding fathers were somewhat different and that occasionally a government comes along uh, that is saying we're not going to be like the secular humanist uh, uh, style. What do I mean? Uh, when I was in school, and it was a previous millennium, uh, it was in the 1950s and 60s. When I was in school, in one of my classes in Pasadena, California, which was fairly secular at that time, um, there was a picture of George Washington with his horse. He's mounted, I mean, he's dismounted from his horse. And it says, at Valley Forge. And uh, he's kneeling in prayer. And I remember that picture because I was sort of wondering, just as a young kid, what, what he was doing. And over that picture was a prayer that he had prayed, not at Valley Forge, but some something later that he had written. Can you find that painting in schools today. I guess that's a no. Okay. Um, and hey, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not saying uh, <clears throat> throw the whole system out. I'm just saying this is the drift that has occurred. And now I, you know, I was looking at that painting at Valley Forge. There's several of them that show diff several different scenes. And, and there's no historical event that it points to that's saying that he really did this. But we do have written on that prayer, uh, on that painting, pictures. And I suspect that if he, uh, I'm sorry, on that picture we have uh, one of his prayers that he wrote. So if he wrote prayers, my guess is he prayed more than once. And we said, here was a person who was calling on the name of the Lord. What is the definition? Well, you have the definition written there, coming up, that, that I have used for you. But uh, I was doing some research, and I found one from uh, the spokesman, a uh, humanist spokesman named Paul Kurtz, who was involved in writing in 1980 the Humanist Manifesto. And he sort of... I'm going to quote what he says, but it's, it's not quite exact because quotes begin and end. But he, he says that secular humanists uh, hold a loose consensus around several propositions, which include, one, religious skepticism, radical separation of church and state, the ideals of individual freedom and democracy, supremacy of free inquiry, Ethics based solely on critical human intelligence, reason, science, and technology. He was doing okay till he got there. Evolution and a radically secularized and moral education. 
what has happened is that uh, by reshaping the Judeo-Christian worldview ethics and, and actually having them in the same form but taking everything out about them that says they came from God, uh, they sound very much the same. How close is respect to love your neighbor? Very close. Show respect to everybody. How close is diversity to, again, love your neighbor as yourself? So that is their definition. And the problem with secular humanism is that over the centuries, it really remains unproven. In fact, it's known more not for its successes, but for its colossal failures. Both Nazi Germany and communist Russia first gained the hearts of the people through, through making them promises of what their nation could be if they just followed them. And yet when, after a few a period of time, they found out that this government that promised them so much ruled them with an iron fist. Both tried to gain world domination. Both were defeated, both from within and from without. Both, uh, you might say, uh, fell apart from the inside, but also my Judeo-Christian worldview says they fell apart from above. That God rules the nations, and when he thinks somebody has gotten out of hand, he will end their rule. So uh, that's what we have. Uh, and so, you know, as you look at the, the ethics of secular humanism, what they're saying is, this is the second great feature, not only is there no real successes, when you look at their ethics, uh, what they're basically getting at is there are no universal or timeless ethical standards. What was good yesterday may be bad tomorrow. Our views, as an example, of tobacco have changed. I grew up in a house filled with smoke. Filled. No, filled. <laughs> Everybody, you know, my mom, my dad, you know, <laughs> they were smoking all the time. Now, you know, you're saying you're, you're doing your children harm. So you're going, well, I'm not sure that's so bad. But it's secular humanism that took it there and science, working with science. What I'm saying is that I have a set of, of ethics that have, been, uh, uh, that have been around for thousands of years that talk about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Uh, we call them the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, no, there's, there's two. Uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He narrowed it down to two. But these are my guide rails. And so as I look at, you know, how things begin to change, they would say, secular humanists, is things change because humans' ideas change and their values change. I would say things change because, at least in Scripture, because there's a revelation from God. Peter falls asleep, he has this vision, God speaks to him, and suddenly he can order everything on the menu. Well, how was this chicken killed? God says, doesn't matter. Bacon? Bacon. <laughs> oh, thank you, God. All right. So, you know, our, our views of tobacco have changed, but our standards of alcohol have not. Uh, and here's something that really should make a secular humanist worry. Uh, 
They have done surveys of the millennials. That's Katie King's, you know, uh, somewhere between 12 and 24, I guess is what they call them, 14 and 24, uh, uh, of the millennials. And they're finding that they are 60-40 against any abortion. Free, sort of, anytime you want. And so what's going to happen is this group gets older and starts to vote if they keep that worldview or that, that ethic the secular humanists are going to be known as the rutted traditionalist. Because things change. Well, so how do we work this way with the secular governments in the kingdom of God? I have ten commandments which I think are relevant and still binding in the way I live. I've chosen to live by those. Jesus chooses the two commandments. These are my guide rails in my relationship with God and my relationship with others. But you ask a secular humanist about how he feels about the Ten Commandments, and he will not know four of them. And he will declare they're only relevant if society determines them to be relevant. A humanist government, however, might think otherwise. See, when you're in government, because power is given to you, there are some very strong temptations. The first temptation is to sustain yourself. The second temptation is to get even larger and more powerful. It happens all the time. This is who we are. That's, that's humanity when he has power. And if those from another worldview begin to disagree with you, their influence is less because their majority is shrinking. And the government claims we are reflecting the majority. You will hear these terms, the greater good. Uh, you will hear, hear these terms, it's just relative. That may change sometime in the future. I came across this quote that I found very interesting um, because it's Edward Gibbons who wrote about the fall of Rome. And he's saying that Rome and, 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 and um, uh, the, 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 the Greek empire were, were very similar. And it says this, they had various modes of worship uh, which the people believed as equally true. And if you went to, if you were with Paul in Greece when he went to Athens, there were all these gods, and they just said, well, just go to the one you want to today and go to another one tomorrow. They're all equally true. Um, but by the philosophers, as equally false. Now listen to this. But by the government officials, as equally useful. Do I mistrust all politicians? Nah, I don't. But I am skeptical. And a person that I know and love ran for office this last time and lost. And um, I really, you know, I didn't get to vote for him because he was outside my district. But, it, you know, I, I had a strong trust in his Judeo-Christian worldview. So as we look at how government uses the people and whatever religion they want to follow... I understand that the government and, and the church, as they come together, there's going to be major clashes. And, and sometimes I will strongly disagree with the humanistic stance of our state. Number one, when does human life begin? These, this was in my lifetime, 1973, when it was determined that human life basically begins at birth, not at conception. And that in between 
in the between conception and birth, uh, it is part of the mother's flesh, and that's the way it's treated. And you're, we're watching things begin to slide backwards and say, not so fast. We know that nine-week-old children have both a heartbeat and feel pain in the womb. Wow. They can feel pain. The second issue is, what is marriage? That's been the last two years here. Actually, about the last 30 in my life. But that's the question. What is marriage and who determines what a marriage is? I like the fact that Genesis, right there, Genesis chapter 2, defines marriage. Adam and Eve were created for one another as male and female. Uh, Genesis that also gives this timely teaching that timeless teaching at the at the end of that chapter, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh, a man and a woman. That is the Judeo-Christian worldview. I'm called a hater because I don't agree with anything else. But leading the charge for the secular humanist is the famous French philosopher um, Joseph Bidon, also known as Vice President Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> who is a Catholic, who is a Catholic, and who stated, as he often opens his mouth and puts in his shoe, um, a marriage is just for any two people who love each other. And that is the new definition where the state and the church are not going to agree. The general population is polled, and, and what has happened is that the general population, it's ideas or its value has changed. The courts have ruled, and they've ruled it in terms of similar to racial, racial civil rights. I will keep my definition because I keep the Judeo-Christian worldview. I realize that might be dangerous, as it's been dangerous to others already. Cake, mixer, uh, cake makers in Denver, uh, uh, wedding chapels in, Mont- in uh, Idaho, I realize it's dangerous. Uh, and maybe I will get a phone call challenging me on that. And um, I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, I believe in the Judeo-Christian worldview that there is a God who has both made me and knows what is the best way to live. And the best way to live is in a relationship with him. My humanistic friends would call me homophobic. I like to call myself God-loving. But I hate nobody. So then how do we, you know, understanding that these worldviews sort of are mixing together, what are, what are we going to do? Uh, what should our activity be? What should, our, should we hide? Should we pick up signs and protest? I think we're given some very clear instructions. And one of them would be in, uh, in Timothy where uh, Paul speaks to Timothy uh, about the church in Ephesus and how it deals with government. But the, probably the best one is the one where Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, telling them how to deal with the Roman Empire and its government. And you see, the Roman government said, well, it's run by the citizens, but really it was run by Caesar and run by the Senate. It was more top-down empire than certainly bottom up. And Paul's first priority as a Jewish Christian was not to hide from the government or not to appease the government. His first priority was to expand the kingdom of God because he had a foot in both worlds, the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire. 
And he did it with great controversy with the governments around him. Uh, the governments heard from certain citizens. And together, the governments and the citizens got together. They would threaten, they would beat, they would imprison, they would stone Paul. But they couldn't kill him. Why? Could it be God was protecting him? Well, not if you're a secular humanist. He's just really lucky. And if anyone wanted to be, you know, anyone wanted to overthrow a secular government, wouldn't it be Paul? Look what they've done to me. I'm part of the underclass. I'm, I'm part of the persecuted. But instead, he tells believers, this is how you live in a humanistic society. I'm reading from Romans chapter 13. And again, Christians in Rome, the belly of the beast. Okay. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Ouch. Paul. You want to take that back and write it over again? No. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which has been established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to you to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing, he is God's servant, second time he said that, even though God's servant may not recognize that, okay, second time he said that, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience, because of your walk with God, because of the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. This is also why you pay taxes. I did this earlier than New Year, okay. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Almost every government that Paul deals with opposes and threatens him. Many persecute him and his companions. And to this church, he gives these instructions. Submit to the government authorities because they are established by God. Respect them, knowing every empire will eventually answer to God. In verse 3, he then says, For no ruler, uh, for no rulers, uh, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free? from fear of the one in authority? The instruction is very simple. Do what's right. You know the right thing to do. You're in the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's very clear. So we're allowed to demonstrate, but we're not allowed to destroy. You see the difference? Continue to do what is right, and the governments will commend you. And hear this. When people of God do good for no pay... Governments cannot compete. What do I mean? The um, 
Hindu-leaning pantheistic government, but it's really more uh, on the British style of parliament, um, wanted to throw Mother Teresa out for decades. They just wanted her gone. You know why they couldn't get rid of her? The people said she's doing too much good. This happens over and over again. Because Christians are the ones who lay down their lives for their neighbors and not asking to be paid and have a, you know, a, a wonderful uh, long-term retirement plan or anything like that. And there's nothing wrong with those. But these people are good for nothing. For nothing. And they always gain the respect. Verse 4. Uh, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. So governments are established and commissioned by God to protect those who do good and to punish those who do wrong. And God desires all people to live in peace and the governments are supposed to help people do that. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to all authorities, not only because, uh, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. The conscience is that part of you which has learned God's Ten Commandments, which has heard Jesus, the great commandment, and the second, which is just as great, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you've heard those, and it becomes more and more a part of you as you are involved in walking with God. In your relationship with God, it's not just a Judeo-Christian worldview that comes out, but it's what you believe your God would want you to do and how he wants you to live. So here's what we are told to do because of conscience. I submit not just to avoid punishment, but because I really want to do what's right before God. God desires that I be a good citizen of a just nation, not a perfect nation, and a just nation that allows me to follow my Judeo-Christian worldview. So what do we do? Well, the first thing is you look at Paul, as he's talking to Timothy in Ephesus, the town that tried to kill him with a riot, uh, he says, Timothy, I want you to tell all the Christians to pray for their government. The first thing you do is you're always in prayer. Not prayer at, pray for. There's a difference. I'm praying for those in power. There's no better time than when you're healing, you know... Then we're in an election cycle to turn off all those terrible ads and pray. The more negative they are, um, the more I should be praying. So he tells them, this town that started a riot over him, continue to pray for your governments. We ask that God would bring just rulers so that we could live in peace and the citizens could help one another with, you know, and extend God's eternal government. So you, before you pick up your sign, get on your knees. Think of that picture of George Washington. You know, George Washington, he's considered the father of our country, but most people thought he didn't have a prayer. He lost most of the battles. But if it is true that he was there praying at Valley Forge, I have this sense that George is, has said, you know, I'm not in this alone. It's just not numbers. It's just not training. It's just not the quality of your army. 
The second thing you get to do is vote. This makes those not in the Judeo-Christian worldview very afraid. Let me ask, how many of you voted? Go on. They're very afraid. It was predicted that about 85% of those in the Judeo-Christian worldview showed up. And our president said, I'm very aware of the two-thirds that did not show up. Do you realize that means... How many? <laughs> if it's only one-third and we're 20%. Do you realize what that means? Amazing. Um, so, I vote for the one who best shares my Judeo-Christian worldview, whether that person is dog catcher or president. Doesn't matter to me. Now, I never saw the dog catcher's, you know, agenda or anything like that. I, but... But that's what I ask. What worldview would this person have? I waited for this till after the election. And I, the other thing I try to do is I try to study up so I can speak intelligently instead of pugilistically uh, to those who don't share my worldview. I know I can beat them up intellectually. Okay? I, I know I can. First of all, I know my worldview very well. But in the last several years, I've studied theirs. And I go, oh, that's where you get that. That's where that comes from. Oh. And so instead of making it a fight, I say, do you, do you mind? Can I just ask two questions? And they go, yeah. Obviously, he's seeking out my superior knowledge and insight into this issue. And so I ask a couple questions. And then they don't want a third. Uh, and it's not to, to belittle them. But your ideas don't work. God, the eternal God, the perfect God, the holy God, the God who sent Jesus Christ for us to die on his cross so that our sins can be forgiven and we would have a relationship with God, <clears throat> that there would be nothing standing between us and God. Therefore, we can, we can throw ourselves on him. That is the God. But these people don't know. And I can engage them about their worldview far better than they can engage me. And so when they want to read my sermons, I hope it's the one I really want them to hear. Okay. <clears throat> so I engage and I don't argue. I want them to be hungry for the grace of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. It's not because our side won or our side lost. It's because you have told us to be in prayer for our nation. And we pray for our nation right now that it would be one that allows us to continue to have freedom of religion and to expand the kingdom in this country and around the world. We realize that means that other faiths also get a foothold and they have freedom. But we put our trust in you and in your power. We put our trust in your gospel, which sets people free. 
We put our trust in Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to earth. We, we put our trust in that what we have in your book is timeless and universal for all humanity that you created. And Lord, we put our trust in this, that you have put eternity in every man's heart. Every female, every man, every young child, every aged person has been planted in the soul that desire for eternal life. And we can speak to it. Our souls have been made for thee, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thank you. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen.